1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The basics are what's important. It starts with the quack. And until you can quack on a duck call, you have no business trying to do anything else. And once you quack, you start learning to do your little greeting calls, you know stick with the basics, learn the basics, again, the quiet, and a greeting call. And that'll call ducks for you anywhere in North America. Since 1936, the
2: National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history, and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Welcome to the NWF Outdoors podcast. This is your host, Aaron Kindle. And today we're going to try something new and have a little fun. Uh, not too new in that we'll have a, have a guest, of course, like we usually do, but we're going to incorporate some calling into the podcast today. We thought that would be a fun thing to do. Uh, it's it's coming up on a lot of hunting seasons if, if you're not already in the middle of one. And so today we brought on our friend, my colleague, someone I really enjoy talking to and and is just a as good of a sportsman as I know and, and is always out on the water and in the field. So
1: first I just want to introduce him. We have Bill Cooksey today. How's it going today, Bill? Hey, it's going great, Aaron. I'm Of course, not in the, on the water in the field today, but I'm glad to be with you. Well, we love having you because you do spend so much time out there
2: and, uh, that really helps, you know, educate and, and just provides good stories to our audience. So thanks for coming. And first, uh, let me tell folks a little bit more about you. You're actually a, I don't know, is this your second or third time
1: on the outdoors podcast? You've, you've been on a time or two. I believe this is the third time, um, did a couple of them in the past, uh, about the Mississippi river Delta and sportsman issues down there. So, uh, and talked a little bit, bit about the Everglades, but those were very programmatic and not so much about, uh, this fun stuff. Yeah. Today we get to just range all over the place with a little bit of a,
2: I guess our grounding will be in waterfowl, but, but who knows where it's going? <laughs> we'll see. But, uh, let me tell folks about you a little bit. Um, We mentioned we were going to do some calling and, and Bill is the guy you want for that because he's a guy who's qualified for the world championship duck calling contest a few different times. And he's won the Tennessee state duck calling championship a couple of times, four times actually. And so he's been, he's a duck maniac. He's been duck hunting for 49 years. He's hunted all over the whole country and beyond into Canada And Bill is a colleague at the National Wildlife Federation. He does a lot of work with our Vanishing Paradise program, uh, which is our program that helps restore the Mississippi River Gulf and the Mississippi River and all those different efforts down there to just do restoration, habitat restoration uh, along the Mississippi River and the Gulf Coast. And so Bill's excellent there. He has a career that he used to be in, in industry and with Avery Outdoors. He's been all over the place and he's just You couldn't really find too much more of a an expert on a lot of these subjects so just thanks for coming bill and uh bill and i are talking about some interesting stuff
1: on the side too so you may see a little bit more of bill in the future like i said i'm glad to be here uh you know i'm i've been okay at a whole lot of stuff i'm i've probably been best from uh from wearing out my parents then my teachers and then uh various bosses over the years and that I would rather be out in the field. Uh, and years ago, I, I went to work you know, at Avery, and that was the right move then. And I remember early on, the boss said, if you wouldn't rather be hunting or fishing, you don't belong in this career. And uh, for you and me and a lot of us at NWF, I think it's the same way. Absolutely. I think that's why we're here, because
2: we love it so dang much. We know that we have a, an obligation to take care of it, too, and work as hard as we can to make sure those things are there for for us and our kids and our grandkids and hopefully forever. So thanks for pointing that out, Bill. Uh, well, today we're going to have some fun and we're going to do a unique type of podcast in that we're going to try to give our listeners the, the most extensive kind of, you know, rundown of what the heck is going on in waterfowl season. Kind of a little bit of an, uh, you know, a forecast of what we can expect Maybe do some calling. Maybe talk about IDing some ducks and decoys and ammunition and all kinds of stuff. So first, we're just going to kick it off and and see what Bill has to say. You know, we're doing a little bit of a 101, but then we're going to get in a little bit further. So anyway, Bill, let's just start with your opinion on the state of ducks. And let's just start with your area. You know, uh, folks who hunt waterfowl know seasons change those those make a difference uh how what the weather's been like in the summer what the conditions are like on the ground uh where where the ducks are going to be migrating to and from and every time i talk to you i learn more and more about these things and so you know if, if you're the lay person <laughs> and you're just like hey i want to start duck hunting and i want to know what i should know let's just jump in and start talking about you know the when the where the how the regulations. And and for and, and maybe the first thing to do, Bill, is, you know, duck season hasn't started some places, Some places it has, you know, maybe just going over a little bit of how that
1: happens. Sure. Um, you know, right now we've, we've kicked off teal seasons in all the states, uh, several of them have finished now. Um, Blue-winged teal especially are an early migrator in the Mississippi and Atlantic flyways and to a lesser extent uh, central, or actually central and then to a lesser extent Pacific. Um, But only some states have a teal season, various reasons for that. But most places, it's been pretty doggone good in in states where you would expect it to be. Um, Even in Louisiana, where Ida tore up a lot of marsh, uh, places where people could get, uh, still had a really good teal season. So that, that was promising, but that was one of the few ducks that the biologists said they believed had done relatively well, uh, this spring and summer. And when I say biologists believed there's not a lot of good, hard information, uh, this year. So I, I hate to kick off a, a podcast with kind of a, a, little bit of gloom and doom, but, uh, because of the pandemic, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has not been allowed to fly the transects in Canada that normally do the uh, the May pond counts. Um, they haven't been able to get boots on the ground uh, to you know view uh, brood survival and brood uh, uh, you know recruitment, uh, nesting, um, all of these factors that are normally and used to were very much included in in our. Uh, uh, when they were coming up with our seasons and limits this year, they're having to go off uh, to a great extent computer modeling, and everything anecdotally from the ground says the modeling is way off. Um, you know, even like in North Dakota where they did were able to fly uh, this year and were able to do the brood counts, they the production survey anticipates a thirty six percent decline in the fall flight. Um, wow. Their wetlands count in nineteen in, in twenty twenty was uh, was really good. In this this summer the wet or this spring the wetlands count was the highest percentage drop in the seventy four years they've been doing the survey. So mm-hmm. it is incredibly dry, and the computer models just are, are missing something. So. You know, you may get lucky where you are, and we'll talk more about that with weather, but in general, there are going to be a lot fewer young ducks in the fall flight this year, uh, almost no matter where you are. Some species may do okay, some little locations, uh, you know, probably had a good year in the boreal forest, which is way up there. It's drier than normal, but that's kind of our uh, security blanket. Uh, for ducks even in the late 80s when and early 90s when things were so bad on the prairies there was enough recruitment out of the boreal forest to uh to keep us in at least in enough ducks to have a hunting season but it's scary right now it really is Hmm.
2: Well, let's talk about that a little bill because i think you know i everybody i think pretty much understands migratory means they move around and they go to different places but I think particularly for waterfowl hunters, boy, you know, we see them for half the time with a lot of these birds, right? Or, or maybe even a little less than half the time. What they're doing the other half is a pretty big issue, whether or not we're going to see them this year or sure. what's going on with them. So let's just talk about that. You said, you know, we weren't, weren't, a, weren't available to fly the count this year due to the pandemic you know, there's habitat changes, whether it be, you know, wildfire or drought or different things happening. What does this season look like, uh, you know, across these
1: flyways and some of these other places considering those different variables? You know, the okay, the great thing about waterfowl uh, compared to, say, deer or turkeys, uh, you know, or other, you know, local game where you know if you have a good population or not, uh, because they do move, I can tell you right now it's going to be awful here in my little part of Tennessee yet if we get just the right conditions it can go from awful on Monday to absolutely incredible on Tuesday Um, and that's Hmm. that's kind of what keeps duck hunters going so uh, but right now let's say in the Mississippi flyway um, the good is way up north they did not have good production in crops either so there's not a lot there to hold ducks And right now we're in pretty good shape. We haven't had a lot of flooding, you know, late into the summer to keep our crops from going in. So there's going to be a lot of food available. And then it's going to be a matter here locally um, and all the way down to Louisiana, what nature brings us as far as water and cold fronts, which are huge in driving birds South. Um, and, And, you know, as you and I have talked about many times, We aren't getting the cold fronts here. We need cold fronts to happen before the winter solstice. And I just usually say before Christmas, because we all see our calendars all say December 25th is Christmas, you know, no matter what the calendar is, but uh, most of us don't have the solstice marked. But if you don't have several cold fronts before then, it's going to be hard to push very many ducks into the south. Um, And obviously, that changes with where you are in the country. Um, If you're up in North Dakota, you're happy with that. You know, um, you're happy with not being frozen out the first of November. Now, past that, um, you know, two and three years ago, we actually had decent weather. Um, Not perfect, but decent as far as cold fronts. But the flooding was so extensive here in the Mississippi River Valley that from Illinois all the way down to Venice, Louisiana, we could have held the entire continent's ducks and there was no real concentration of them. So it made hunting very, very difficult. It was easy to find a place to go, but it was tough to find a lot of ducks in a place. Sure. I think, you know, let's look at this from
2: a, a one-on-one perspective, Bill. And I should say, you know, I don't hunt a lot of ducks. I live in the mountains of Colorado. You have to go a few hours to find any decent duck hunting. And I I, I hunted a little bit of ducks when I was a kid. My dad had an awesome bird dog. And uh, we would hunt these canals in the middle of Wyoming, about the only place you could find water. But <laughs> certainly does not reflect the kind of conditions and things you're talking about that's uh, pretty, pretty, you know, it's one on a scale of 10 of of your nine and 10 that you're talking about the kind of duck scene you're dealing with. But I think one of the things we ought to do here is just talk about the, you know, the, if someone's trying to get into this and they're thinking, okay, I want to be a duck hunter. What do they need to go think about? And, you know, let's start with habitat. You know, everybody knows ducks need water, but you, you walk out into the woods and you find some swamps and ponds and different things. What do you, what are you, should you
1: be looking at in those cases? well that you know that's a loaded question and and Aaron just so you know (laughs) on purpose I'm fortunate that I've gotten to hunt so many different areas I mean I spent several years in Southern California and the place I hunted with my dad there he was in a club off Avenue A in Antelope Valley California our nearest neighbor was Edwards Air Force Base Um, so we would actually have fighters come over and wave their wings at us when we were out hunting at times Uh, so so I've seen some drive Landscape duck hunting because that place is a desert. Um, there again, a lot depends on where you are. The number one thing, if you're if you've either moved to a new area or if you've just suddenly got this bug, you want to try duck hunting. A couple of different things you can do. Number one, um, I'm going to start with the old-fashioned way, and that is to join some local groups, um, whether it be you know. Uh, Ducks Unlimited and Delta both have some great local g- groups you can get involved in and help them out with work they're doing. And so many areas, California has a, you know their own waterfowl association. Other places have it even on down to a down to county level waterfowl associations. And, and those are great ways to get involved locally and meet local people. Uh, and, and I've never moved anywhere and gotten involved like that that I didn't at least get a few invitations and a, enough information to get started. Um, but, but next is, is getting online. Uh, there's so many online resources, uh, for learning your area better. Um, and not the least of which is Google Earth. And now we have so many other apps, but between your state agency, you know, studying in Tennessee, you know, you'd study the WMAs and the, uh, refuges, figure out which ones allow hunting. And then you can get online and you start going through historical imagery and I, I had a friend from Maryland a few years ago. He went to Arkansas to strictly freelance duck hunt without a boat. And he had a list of things he wanted to try to hunt, a list of geese and ducks he wanted to, to try to shoot while he was there. And I was like, no way, dude. And, and he was hunting right by a place, an area that I'm very familiar with, with Google Earth. He took the time and he would take the, the state maps of where you're allowed to hunt and then overlay them. On Google Earth and start identifying these small ways that you could even access some of these areas that locals just weren't bothering with. Um, you know, obviously you're looking for water, um, and these now now we're talking stuff you do in the off season. You have to identify possible targets, and then when the conditions allow, you have to go to those places and see. What they look like, how you can access them. A place that on Google Earth looks like you could walk into may have some some ditches or beaver runs that make it impossible to wade. So you have to somehow get something to float you back in there. Um, then, as the season gets closer, it's a matter of uh, getting back in there and seeing if there are birds. Uh, then again, they're at, like in public timber, you're generally not going to, you know, most people want to find the X, so they want to go to where the ducks are landing. That's not always a possibility, so you have to learn to identify in the air the highways ducks are using on a given day, and then get under those highways, and with a call, try to talk them into coming to you. But the main thing is to get to a place with ducks, and and number one is identifying potential duck habitat. Number two is on-the-ground scouting. The third way is the easy way, and that's meeting some folks and getting invited to join a club, but there are plenty of clubs that stink, too, so... Um, I, I guarantee around here there's the public places that are a whole lot better than a lot of the private places that people are paying big money to try to hunt.
2: Hmm. Well, that's good to know. What about, you know, I know in your neck of the woods, you're probably hunting, I don't know, how many
1: different species of ducks are you hunting? That That's a good question, too. I mean, around here, say, if you're hunting in the woods, it, it's mallards and and some degree pintails and obviously wood ducks um, at times black ducks and gadwalls um, but that's kind of it but when you get out in the field um, like the, the main place I hunt these days mallards are typically our number one ducks uh, pintails number two last year our third was canvasbacks. we just had a world of canvasbacks around us hmm. last year um, and so we're also shooting gadwalls green wing teal ringnecks blue bills um it seems like almost anything in the mississippi flyway i just found out today i, I drew a sandhill crane tag and i've never uh, had one here in tennessee and that's fairly new but we see some sandhills every year and then we have speckle belly geese snow geese canada geese so we really get a wide variety um, but we were we were talking the other day about uh identifying ducks and that's one of the most difficult things for new newcomers to do i mean you're in theory you're supposed to know how to identify i mean and you'll have know-it-alls like me who will say if you can't identify every possible duck in flight you shouldn't be hunting and that's bull (laughs) Um, if you if you had to wait until you could do that you would never get to hunt. Um, I'm better than most people at identifying ducks at a distance, but I've still, uh, every year, I will walk out and pick up what I thought was a a gadwall and it's a hen pintail or, you know, little things. But what I would encourage people to do is find out as you're going through your other research looking for places to hunt, don't worry about all the ducks in North America. Um, The odds of me ever killing a, a scoter in Tennessee are astronomically low. I don't need to know how to identify one in flight to hunt locally. Find out, usually it'll be three, four, at most a half dozen species that are really common in your area. And really study those, you know, get the little master's book, go online, watch video, look at photos, and learn the characteristics. Um, And if you do that, there's really, barring some really weird, uh, just small areas in the country there's no species that you're not allowed to shoot at all. So don't make it too hard on yourself. Go and have a good time. If you shoot something you don't know what it is, figure it out before you go to shooting anything else um, and, and don't post it online. But uh, um, in general, there, there's really, as long as you only shoot one of a duck, there's, you're not going to hurt anything and you're not going to be in trouble. And you can look it up and figure out what it is and know where you stand. So learn to identify your most common local ducks. And that's going to take care of 98% of your hunting, uh, until you start going other places. And then over the years, you learn all these other little tricks to, to identifying birds. I, I mean, I've been in Canada when the only way you could tell a drake from a hen mallard and in the area, it didn't matter, but it did to us, uh, was quite often the color of the bill. And when they're 25 yards away in flight, that can be a little tricky, uh, luckily we you know there were a lot of ducks so it, you know we still got got our shooting but we, you'd sit there and look for a yellow bill uh versus a, that orange and black of the hens. sure what about flight patterns bill i mean you know i
2: i i'm a burger to a degree you know i like looking at all different kinds of birds and one of the ways i've noticed some you know woodpeckers have that certain flight and then fly catchers do something different and Obviously, big eagles and so on fly. Yeah. What about flight pattern with
1: with common waterfowl, huntable waterfowl? And they can vary a great deal. Um, like pintails, uh, especially the drakes, but in general, pintails are easy to spot in flight. You know, they have just such a, a an outline that that is, you know, you you can't miss. But then there are species like teal the way they group up and twist and dart and go up and down just a real erratic flight. Um, you know, that is usually, a, a makes it really easy to identify teal. Um, mallards have ways they work and even, uh, just the way at a distance that their color schemes, even when you can't see skull color are different, um, divers, you know they fly fast and low and usually in tight formations they're screaming um often you'll hear them coming before you even see them Uh, and sometimes you hear them as they go past you when you haven't seen them Um, so so yeah the waterfowl uh, flight characteristics vary a great deal and then all of a sudden uh here at times uh, this used to not be the case but now that we hunt to to the end of january I'll every year see at least a few uh, courtship flights the last week or two of the season. And you, you'll be watching and think, man, that's a big flock of teal coming. And then you realize it's a pintail courtship flight and they're just low darting and weaving like a bunch of teal.
2: Good. And then there's, you know, beyond that, I think one of the most daunting things, especially about entering hunting, no matter who you are, is the regulations. Right. And, and we're sitting here talking about, you know, Looking at flight patterns and different species, we're talking about it's different in different states. Let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, not only do we have different states, but we also have, you know, wildlife refuges managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which have different regulations than the states often have. You have multiple wildlife refuges
1: and the state regulations. Let's help folks unpack that a bit. Well, it, and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service regulations and it, hunting deer, turkey, elk, squirrels, all of that other stuff that, that you and I love, we're dealing with state regulations. And the first thing people have to understand, and even longtime duck hunters, I hear this all the time, they don't grasp the fact U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service regulations are to a great extent based on international treaty Those regulations supersede all state regulations. And when I say that, I'm saying that a state can be more conservative in a regulation. Uh, The feds in in the Mississippi Flyway allowed two hen mallards. And I believe Minnesota and at one time Arkansas at least made their limit one. That's okay. A state can do that. But a state can't say, we're going to allow four hen mallards. That's not allowed. Um, so some of the regulations you have to get used to, um, number one, uh, non-toxic shot everywhere. There, other, other than sandhill cranes, which are not waterfowl, but, you know, all of the other stuff we hunt, ducks and geese, you have to use non-toxic shot, period. And that's something we can talk about later as far as, you know, what to use. But um, other things you have to learn are the uh, um, the possession limit. Uh, I see it all the time online and this was the case 30 years ago before uh, what before Google people thought, well my state possession limits allow me to have all I want in my freezer at home. Your state possession limit is meaningless when it comes to waterfowl. You are allowed three days limits so here i could have 18 ducks in my freezer and we put species aside which we have species limits and all but a total of six each day that's all i'm allowed in my freezer now i can have also a limit three days for my wife and three days for my son so you know if you have several people in the household it's not quite as as restrictive but um you know, I, I hear from people all the time who think well i live in texas and you know Possession limit ends once you're home. That's not true for waterfowl. Now, other things, one uh, waste uh, in waterfowl, the feds, this is kind of a weird thing. Feds, what you have at home, one waste is only a field thing for them. So once it's home, this is sad to say, but theoretically, you can throw them in your trash can and they don't matter anymore. Except if you have too many, then you're in violation, which those laws are really, to me, probably need to be looked at. But then the uh, uh, flip side of that, states like Montana is one where it goes by the species and the size of the bird, what parts you have to keep. So if here, I might just save the breasts off of mallards. Um, you know, especially early season when there are a bunch of pin feathers and stuff, I'll just save the breasts and or the breasts and legs. And in Montana, you would have had to say, you know, and I'm, I may be a little mistaken, but you'd have to have wings, breasts and legs. And, and if you don't, that's one waste. So that's one of the cases, uh, another case of the state regulations being more restrictive and that's allowed. Um, but you can never be more liberal than the federal regulations. That's for baiting. That's for possession limits. That's for shot types. So learn the federal regulations, and then study your state regulations and find out where they differ, uh, because they can be. I mean, we have places here that, uh, Amita where you're allowed 15 shells. That's it, uh, and that's on. A, that's a public hunting area. Others, no limit. You carry in whatever you want. No big deal. Uh, There is also a three-mallard limit, even though all the rest of the state of Arkansas is a four-mallard limit. So, yeah, the the regulations can get – it's almost like some of the Alaska big-game regulations where you cross a road and you're a felon um, if you don't know what you're you're doing.
2: Hmm. So – what do you think the things it would be worth, you know, on average, Joe or Jane out there thinking about, you know, you, you talked about there's a lot of difference, but is there any quick tricks to here's where you need to check or here, here's a place that, I mean, I can imagine a few different uh, heavy waterfowl states compare and say, hey, here's what happens on refuges. Here's what happens in the state. Is there any kind of quick
1: little shortcuts folks might be able to think about? Yeah, I mean, the the number one thing is to check your state regulations um, for waterfowl. Don't read the general, I mean, I I shouldn't say don't read your general regulations, but your state waterfowl regulations are going to get you at least 90% there. Um, I I just, I really wanted to hit on that U.S. Fish and Wildlife deal because you do hear too many people not quite grasping it, um, especially with possession limits and with the baiting laws. Uh, because baiting laws, that's another thing that varies. I mean, I'm not allowed to bait here for deer, but other states, no problem. Um, Waterfowl, it doesn't work that way. So, but number one, view your state regulations. Um, When you're identifying places you want to hunt, look them up, because if they are a a refuge or a state WMA, they should, uh, all I've ever looked at, have specific regulations for that area. Sometimes it will say, Same as statewide, Um, other times it's going to have, like Biomita, they'll express their specific regulations in addition to the statewide. So your number one thing is learn your state regulations. Then if something doesn't sound right, cross it over with Fish and Wildlife Service. And all of that you can get online so fast. You know, In 30 seconds, you can find out how to import a duck from Argentina. Uh, The Fish and Wildlife Service does a great job of making that stuff available. Just, but but don't just go around asking people um, unless you're even when you're asking game wardens because a lot of times say a state guy may not know the Fish and Wildlife Service uh, rules like he should especially if you're in a state that isn't really really waterfowl heavy um, where they hear it a lot. And now
2: let's pause for
1: a message from
2: our partner podcast.
1: Hey everyone, this is Marcia Brownlee from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation, so head on over to the Artemis Podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I think we should jump to uh, decoys okay. and calling and how you attract ducks because nope. that's uh, that's something I think everybody who likes hunting loves to figure out ways to attract what they're after. So I think that'd be a fun thing to jump to now. Sure. Uh, and, we, and I think it, one of the unique things about this is we want to do some calling on the podcast, which is fun. So let's dive over to decoys and say, mm-hmm. you know everybody can can get decoys in store and they can go Hey, here's the species i want but it's a lot more difficult than that placement calling bringing them in where how when to set them up let's go through that a bit
1: yeah uh decoying is man they're they're, like everything else in hunting there there are no always and there's no never um just as we talked about identifying ducks, learning what species you have in your area, that's usually the first thing you know people suggest. Find out what species you have in your area and buy decoys accordingly. And that's generally a, a, a good idea. Um, me, I personally believe visibility is more important than specific species. Um, I love to have a lot of white and a lot of black. Um, So for white canvas spoonbills, pintails, um, those decoys, golden eyes, stand out from a mile away in certain lighting conditions. In other light, black ducks, Um, and of course there again, that's where spoonbills are great because that Drake has all that black too. Um, Some of your divers like like bluebills and ringnecks, that black pops and, and you can see it from a long distance on a different type of visibility. So I am, really more interested most of the time in the visibility of my decoys than I am with species. Now, if you're hunting a really small pothole um, where you don't get a lot of ducks and, and you know, it's going to be little bitty groups and, and they've been around a while, uh, you know, the, the types of decoys probably do matter more. They're coming there anyway. And as much as anything, you're trying not to scare them. But if, if you're trying to attract a number of ducks, Visibility is key, uh, and, and a trick I've told kids about forever, you know, when you don't have money to buy a bunch of new decoys, you can buy worn out old decoys for next to nothing, and you can save milk jugs, and you just mix up a bucket of roofing tar and, and gasoline just into a thin mixture, and you can tar jugs, and those make great decoys. You can kill ducks out of over them anywhere in the country, so the species and all i think are are less important most of the time than visibility numbers there again that's going to come down to where you are the type of water you're hunting um, how far birds need to see you how birds set up in that area Um, when you're hunting those those creeks and all out west it's not a big number of decoys needed they're flying that river you just need enough to catch their attention uh, whereas like my spot that I hunt most of the time uh, right now, we'll have about anywhere from five to 700 decoys most days. And if we didn't, you could cut our duck numbers way, way, way down. Um, so, so local conditions wow. are going to dictate numbers. Yeah. How do you get that
2: many decoys out on the water? seems like it'd take you two hours just to just get that many decoys out on the water.
1: We, we don't cook them up and put them out every day. Um, you know, these are private areas where there are permanent spreads and even a lot of our public areas allow permanent spreads in in places where you have like draw blinds and that sort of thing. And and really these areas, even if it were illegal, you would not get the numbers of ducks if you had to put out just five or six dozen every day. Um, so the big permanent spreads are kind of, kind of, I know people that will have 2,500 decoys out in front of their blind at real foot.
2: Wow, that's some that's some severe decoys. I you're you're talking about a realm I'm not familiar
1: with. Well, what about calling? Uh, yeah, ahead. I mean it's it's Well, I was going to say yeah, it's it's like I said it's such a difference. Um like in, in an area where you're hunting over a you know, pretty sizable water and you're hunting birds that that sit on refuges and then fly out to feed and seek new water, that sort of thing. They're used to being around big wads of birds, and they're not comfortable a lot of the time sitting down with a small group. Then, but other days, every now and again, just a, a three or four decoys out can be the magic number. So, you know, if you don't have seven hundred decoys, that doesn't mean don't, don't duck hunt. You can still kill birds. Well,
2: good. And then let's add the calling to it because obviously you get the decoys out, and then topping it off is calling
1: them in well calling is my favorite part of duck hunting um if if i couldn't work ducks with a call uh, I, I wouldn't care about it near as much i'd probably deer hunt more um, and just go as a guest every now and then to shoot some ducks because i do love to eat them but you know for a beginner um if you really want to get into it i suggest going the, the hard long route if not um, if you just want to blow a duck call and track some ducks, uh, we'll start with what calls to get. You can go down and buy a, a Haydell d r 85. And that's by Rod Haydell, a good friend of mine in Louisiana. It's a little double read call that they're probably still about 15 bucks, maybe 20 bucks. And they're a heck of a duck call and really easy to master. Um, if someone really wants to become an accomplished caller, I would tell them, Get a good, solid single read call, and, and I hate to to go into brands because there are so many. But a good, well known, injection molded single read call, and start with that. Um, but the basics are what's important. Um, it starts with the quack, and until you can quack on a duck call, you have no business trying to do anything else. And once you quack, you start learning <laughs> to do your little greeting calls. You know the. I mean, you start with the quack, and then a greeting call is just a string of three or four quacks. Um, those two things will call 90% of the callable ducks in North America. You don't have to uh, um, learn to do the competition hail calls. They, at times, are effective. You don't have to learn to do the, the really fast speed call. Those are fun and nifty, um, but you really don't need them to call ducks. Stick with the basics. Learn the basics. Again, the quiet and greeting call, and that'll call ducks for you anywhere in North America. And so
2: are those. You're not talking about a certain species, even. I mean, those are those are pretty kind of universal.
1: Will work a mallard call, um, even even divers. Uh, when when we get divers flying around, I mean, they don't typically do the, the greeting calls like that. But they're and that's just rolling the tongue and canvasbacks do that all day long, sitting on the water. Um, so that gives you a diver call. Um, believe it or not. Pintail hens, gadwall hens, spoonbill hens. Uh, basically, every puddle duck hen has their version of a greeting call. And if you're sitting there on a uh, dark morning before shooting time with a lot of ducks in a, a, a field or body of water around you in the marsh, you'll hear, rang, 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 and it sounds like all these different voices, and it is because a lot of times it's different species of ducks. So you sit there thinking it's all mallards and there's a good chance it's not. Um, one thing I didn't mention that, that I think is it's crucial, I use it all the time, and this is something a beginner can use and learn fast, um, would be a whistle. Just uh, you know, I always refer to them as a pintail whistle, and they're less than 10 bucks. You can get them everywhere. Uh, it can make a pintail whistle. It can make a widgeon It might just locked up. Um, it can do a mallard grunt, like a drake mallard. So um, you, you can do a lot with a whistle. And it, if you're not really confident in your, in your uh, mallard calling yet with that that hen call, get a whistle and learn to do it. Because I. Promise you in five minutes you can have that sucker rolling and and be ready to call ducks and uh, I I try to get everyone that hunts with me to have a whistle on, on their lanyard and we'll mix it up one person hitting the heavy stuff and a couple of people on whistles and, and it makes a great sound and and really works in the field.
2: So get that basic call, the double read. If mm-hmm. you're a beginner, get the whistle. What other equipment? you know, for, for someone starting out, should they be thinking about, you know, you talked about decoys too, obviously those, but right. You know, we, we wanted to talk a little bit about ammo because that's a, the, you mentioned non-toxic is the requirement for waterfowl, migratory waterfowl. Mm-hmm. And what else? Let's talk about the other stuff. You know,
1: um, uh, equipment kind of like it. And now when it comes to calls, I still recommend people also get a single read because that will t- once you learn to use a good single read, you can pick up any call in the world and make it work um, and get everything out of it. But a double read is a good fast way to, to making ducky sounds. Um, so now that we've talked about decoys and about uh, calls, the I guess the next thing would be guns and ammo and, and you know, as, as you know, most people shoot a 12 gauge at waterfowl. Thing is, a 20-gauge, a 16-gauge, this this is something else you and I have talked about right now. 12-gauge ammo is a lot easier to find, and it's not easy than 20 and 16. And I even have friends that shoot 28 and 410, but we'll get to them with ammo. I mean, I've shot a ton of ducks with a 20-gauge and steel shot. And if you understand the limitations, which... For most of us, the limitations really as far as we have any business trying to shoot at a duck anyway, you know, 35 to 40 yards is about as far as most people can consistently hit a bird. And that's just the way it is. Every study proves it. Um, So any 12 or 20 gauge with an improved cylinder or modified choke is going to be able to, to kill a duck with steel shot as far as you have any business shooting at it. And when it comes to ammo... You know, I shoot almost all steel shot, and I've shot a lot of the other stuff that I'll talk about in a second. But uh, for ducks, I use steel fours all year long, and in my twelves, I use a two and three quarter inch steel four, and, and have no issues killing January mallards and pintails and canvasbacks out to forty yards with that, that ammo. Um, you know, if you're someone that hunts where there are a ton of Canada geese, and, and uh, you know. You, you want something heavier, you know, twos and BBs are great. Um, I don't like them on ducks, but it's more because they pull a lot of feathers into the meat and they make uh, cleaning it up more difficult. But that will give you a little extra as far as, you know, breaking wings and, and getting those big geese and those heavy birds, you know, on the water and retrievable. Um, but, you know, steel will do all most of us have any business doing, but we have all these new pellet types that have come out, you know, since non-toxic came to being. I mean, it began with bismuth. I have shot thousands of rounds of bismuth and it's great stuff, very similar to lead. Uh, And it's also great for old guns. And that's one of the things that still is kind of an issue. Um, But bismuth does work great with with the old shotguns if you like shooting those. Um, Then you have the various tungsten shots, you know, the heavy shots and the uh, tungsten matrix and, and now this tss and this stuff not only is incredible in the 12s and 16s and 20s but it's allowed people both in waterfowl and turkey uh to drop down to 28 and 410s and, and have just incredibly effective shotguns and, and it's uh It's changed the game. The problem is that stuff is very, very expensive.
2: It sure is. I got some TSS for my my kid and his turkey, for for turkey,
1: 20-gauge. Stuff is spendy. (laughs) Yes, it is. Uh, Most of the people I know that shoot it regular load their own, but even that is – you don't want to do it if you're not going to, uh, if you're planning on going through a lot of ammo, but man, if you were going on, say a once in a lifetime sea duck hunt, uh, or, or to hunt Brant, or you know something that, all of which can be shot with steel shot, but if it's something you are spending a lot of money to go on a once in a lifetime hunt, or, or it's your one shot, when I go after Sandhills this year, now that I have a tag, um, if I know they're in the area, I'll probably have a gun loaded up with with at least some heavy shot um to be prepared to maximize that opportunity if one should come along.
2: Yeah. I think the at least what I've done and I don't I'm not a huge waterfowl guy like you but it's you know if you're shooting like turkeys it doesn't matter that much right you're going to shoot a shot or two maybe. You're not going to you're not going to be out there shooting 20 rounds or something like if you're
1: having a big waterfowl day so it makes a little more sense. Right. Yeah you, you can you can burn up some some ammunition on a windy day in a duck blind. <laughs> uh, you know you you if you do it right, your first shot even on a windy day is pretty easy. But they get they get to be pretty tough pretty quick when they catch that wind and they're getting out of there. There, and it's all about putting pellets in vital spots. Um, and that's why I like the smaller pellets in steel. Um, because it increases my odds of getting a pellet in a vital area. Mm-hmm. Now, bigger pellets increase the the potential of breaking a wing, you know, or, or something else, you know, that that would cause a duck to go down that a smaller pellet wouldn't impact.
2: Yeah, and so let's talk a little bit about steel too, because, I mean, the rub on steel for a long time was it doesn't perform well. I think things are getting a lot better. We we know we you know we, as you know, and a lot of our listeners know we work a lot on promoting the use of you know non-lead out in the field Mm -hmm. right when you're out there which with waterfowl you have to do anyway but you know with big game and upland and others you know just when you're in the field using things that won't allow any lead to find its way into another critter or water supplies or whatnot so you've been hunting the whole time basically since before it was before it was illegal and then up until it was illegal and then through the kind of maturation of of steel shot because at first it was pretty rough yeah maybe you can talk a little bit about that that evolution of steel shot and what you're doing now and how effective it is
1: yeah, absolutely yeah i've managed to legally use lead for waterfowl for about 15 years in the early part of my my hunting life um and as you start said when steel came along um it it was pretty poor. They loaded it like lead and and it took a long time for the manufacturers to really figure it out and catch up and for hunters to figure it out and and catch up, um, speed and wads and chokes and, um, how those factors come together in different ways. I mean, it's a very dynamic thing. And in the eighties, when they first started, you know, some of the early steel mandates, some of that stuff was just anemic. Um, and, and I knew men who in in 1990, when they really started putting the ban in place everywhere, they quit hunting. They not worth going, just not worth going. Uh, number one, they were being told they had to buy new shotguns. Uh, number two, when they did shoot at ducks, it just wasn't what they were used to having. Some of that's the fault of the hunters and not knowing what to use, but also no one, had learned enough to tell them what they needed. And in the 90s, it slowly changed. I mean, in 1995, I finally bought a 10-gauge because I was sick to death of having to chase ducks. And a 10-gauge kind of put me with steel shot on par to where I'd been in 1989 with an ounce and five-eighths of lead number sixes. Uh, So it it kind of put me on an even playing field. By the early 2000s, I was back to shooting at 12-gauge, three-inch, and now I'm shooting at 12-gauge with two and three-quarters. And I'm very happy with it. So, um, when you hear the old stories about steel, they're true. It was awful. Um, When someone tells you today it's no good, they're just wrong. Now, if you're going to be a pass shooter and that's your passion and you want to set up to shoot 60-yard ducks, no, steel's not the right thing. It just isn't. You're going to have to look at the very least, it's something like bismuth. Um, we, you can't get around physics. Physics are what they are. Um, so you'll need bismuth or heavy shot or TSS. But for the majority of us who are trying to decoy ducks and, and get the uh, really the easiest shot opportunity, um, because that's also the most fun to – it's not necessarily the most fun shot, but it's the most fun opportunity at ducks is interacting with them, getting them in close, and getting that close shot and still – Steel actually excels at it. It does very, very well.
2: Yeah. Talk about shooting style, Bill, because, you know, folks should know steel is is less dense than lead and most of these other, you know, alternatives that that Bill mentioned. It's also faster. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a different way you shoot it. Maybe you can unpack that a little.
1: You know, when it comes to waterfowl and, and steel shot, I don't think most people are going to notice a difference due to the speed. Um, I've seen it broken down uh, in some tables, and really you're talking about inches um, as far as the lead involved. Um, But your choke becomes more critical with steel than it was with lead. And it's really important, especially if you're, you're looking to shoot between 35 and 45 yards to pattern your steel shot um, and make sure you have a good, not only dense, but even and broad pattern, Um, one that you can work with. Um, I've known people that tried to get a a turkey choke to work for waterfowl, and I said, you won't be able to hit a flying bird with that. You got to open it up. So patterning your gun for the conditions and range you expect to shoot are are critical uh, and, and various steel loads will perform very different in, in different guns even i have two 870s with 28 inch barrels they pattern differently even when i interchange chokes they pattern differently why i don't know um, <laughs> but the same shells will pattern differently so you have to put them on paper i i'm not as concerned with speed um, because I don't think most people, and I'm, I'm the same, I'm this way, I don't really notice a, a difference in my lead. Plus, I haven't shot lead, lead, slow lead at ducks in so long. But, uh, but even going from the trapping skeet range to ducks, it, it's all about moving your gun with the bird and getting ahead of them and pulling the trigger. And, and if you do that, you know, focus on their head, Get in front of that head, pull the trigger, they're going to fall. And that's whether it's, you know, 1250 or 1700 feet per second. Personally, I like the, you know, somewhere between 14 and 1500 feet per second would be my favorite speed um, in a two and three quarter or three inch load. You're talking an ounce and sixteenth to an ounce and three eighths of shot. Um, anywhere in there would, uh, to me, is a great duck killing load just find the one that patterns well in your gun and the size shot that patterns well in your gun and we should say
2: talk about modern guns because most now are are fine with steel shot and and you know can handle this and you know you mentioned earlier some of the folks with older guns those were not designed for steel shot and there's some problems with that
1: maybe you can talk to us a little bit about those differences and how they're built now Sure. And, and, you know, one thing people don't realize, now w- part of the problems with the early steel and, and older guns, they didn't know how to put a wad in steel that protected the barrel. You know, they just put a lead shot wad in there. So the steel shot eventually would score the inside of your barrel. That's not the case anymore. Um, certainly with say old Damascus barreled guns and I have friends that shoot them. Um, they aren't made to handle the pressures that modern loads, even modern lead uh, loads, common loads anyway, put out. So those are out of the picture. You'd be surprised if you're if you're as long as it's not a full choke. Um, I have some guns from the 50s and 60s that I shoot steel in. Um, now, I, I shoot small shot size. Hmm. You know, I, I don't go any bigger than number four and none of them have a full choke. They're either improved cylinder or modified. Um but, you you know, you can't shoot the hottest stuff. You're not going to go out and buy 1,700 feet per second, you know, shells or steel BBs. Then you start looking at bulging barrels, that sort of thing, potentially. But, you know, it's certainly worth calling a gun manufacturer and asking, but it's not quite the, um, it's more of a caution than a do not proceed. Um, my suggestion yeah. would be proceed with caution and stay with small shot size And don't go with the really hot stuff. If there's an older gun you really want to go shoot a duck with, it may be doable. Heck, somebody somebody can email me and and I'll give them my thoughts directly on their gun. Uh, Obviously, I'm not a manufacturer and I can't take on liability, but I I shoot a lot of older guns with some steel shot, but I wouldn't make them my daily shooter. Modern guns, though, that's where you really want to be. Um, They're built for steel. They're choked you know, the, the chokes, a lot of times we'll say, you know, modified lead, full choke steel um, on the side. And some of them will have, you know, specific steel chokes. Uh, and, and a lot of those are great, just like some of the, the heavy, uh, heavy shot and TSS uh, chokes that are out there that are made for that type of pellet. And it's the same with steel. Um, so I certainly, most of your duck shooting takes place with newer shotguns. Shotguns made since, say, the late 80s. Um, And you're going to be safe with any of those guns. Mm -hmm. And frankly, when it comes to chokes. Yeah, I know on a couple of my chokes, it says, okay for steel, right on them. Um, Number one, I I would recommend most folks never go tighter than a modified choke for waterfowl. Um, Probably 75% of my ducks are shot with an improved cylinder. Uh, And I have one 870 that I shoot more often than not during duck season it has an improved cylinder in it most of the time and then i have a super tight choke um that stays in my pocket for a really windy day Uh, and in high winds because the ducks do kind of catch the wind and get out fast that heavy that really tight choke gives me an advantage on the longer ducks sure huh
2: let's let's pivot one more time or maybe a couple more but uh What's your favorite duck to eat, and how do you like to eat it? How do you like to prepare it?
1: You know, um, most of the puddle ducks I enjoy, Uh, and and most of the divers are okay. They get a bad rap, and it's funny because in market hunting times, the divers were the most treasured ducks, and I think our tastes had Hmm. changed. Some of the diet of the birds has caused the change, but also I think our tastes have changed. And stronger flavored meats, we don't tend to appreciate like our aunt forefathers did. Um, my favorite would have on ducks would have to be a green winged teal. Um, it's just rare you get one that isn't good. Uh, when, with mallards, you'll get mallards that've been eating minnows and, and other you know snails and junk, and they will have a just a strong flavor to them. Uh, most of the time, they're great. I mean, I eat more mallards than anything. Yeah. My wife will say, I want all the teal plucked. You know, she <laughs> she wants those teal uh, maximized every time. Um, pintails are very, very uh, consistent in my area. Wigeon around here are consistent. But I know people on the West Coast, the Pacific Northwest, they'll tell you, don't even try to eat a wigeon. Not worth it. Don't shoot them. Um, same with cinnamon teal. Just don't. If you want to eat ducks, don't shoot those around here. And I'm sure it's something to do with the local diet that uh, for that period, because I remember in Southern California, the widgeons were great. Um, but up in that area, I guess they get into something, and for a period they're pretty rough. So green winged teal is number one. Goose, the speckle is number one, and for the same reasons, very consistent and, and very good flavor. Ways I cook them, it's – Hard to beat, you know, butterfly Italian dressing, uh, stuffed with cream cheese and jalapenos and wrapped with prosciutto or bacon. <laughs> you know, there's there's um, no way that can't taste good. I do. Like with Mallard's, I'll sometimes do a deal uh, with uh, uh, where I take and sear the breast meat on both sides in a pan, and then I'll make a, a port wine and uh, a raspberry marmalade reduction sauce. And, and and I made I made gumbo uh, last week uh, with a bunch of gadwalls that I had in the freezer. Uh, gadwalls tend to, they tend to vary a lot, and I usually will bag gadwalls and in in uh, gumbo size packages and use expressly for the gumbo. Nice. Well, all of those things sound pretty tasty to me. So
2: we'd be remiss, Bill, if we didn't talk a little bit about duck conservation. Right. I mean, there's a lot of different things that ducks are dealing with. Um, We have some kind of seminal conservation laws like like NACA and uh, even the water, some of the water rules and and laws that have come through conservation history. You know, ducks are dealing with a lot of different things, as we talked about earlier, their habitat. uh, You know what what's happening up in Canada or way up in the Arctic for some of them is, is, you know, part of what we need to think about even down here. And then, you know, obviously there are wintering grounds down in our neck of the woods, your neck of the woods and in the coasts, uh, Louisiana, Georgia, those kinds of places. What do you think the number one thing is we should be thinking about as it relates to duck conservation
1: is that folks should know about and understand? You know, the prairie pothole region, it's all about getting uh, moisture up there in the winter and the spring. Um, and, And that could, Bus next year. I mean, just boom next year, and we get the water. And there's tons of invertebrates because that new water is better than water that's been sitting there for three years. I mean, it, if there's a fish population, it's not real good for ducks as far as breeding habitat. Then you come down the Mississippi Flyway or the Atlantic Flyway and the Pacific and uh, Central have their own issues with water for sure. Um, we've dredged and channelized everything and, and levied it all up, so we have a tiny fragment of the the Uh, habitat we used to have. So all this private stuff, uh, refuges and public areas is kind of all ducks have available. Um, And uh, thank God it's there. And then you get down to the coast, like uh, Louisiana, aside from the the coastal marshes, which are basically being lost at a football field every hundred minutes. Uh, So that's a big hit for ducks in that area. But down there, you had a lot of rice fields historically. Well, now a ton of those rice fields, which were great duck habitat, have been turned into either sugar cane, which is useless totally for ducks, or crawfish farms Uh, during duck season, where they used to, they could have been flooded for for, uh, ducks. Now they're flooded deep in a different cycle to raise crawfish. And you can't blame a farmer for trying to earn a living. Uh, but it's poor duck habitat, which used to be great at duck habitat. So when you hear folks in Louisiana talking about, uh, bad duck hunting, a lot of that's because they have lost about 40% of the duck habitat they even had, say, 25 years ago. And then you get into Florida and it's the same thing. Um, they historically wintered huge numbers of pintails and there are only a few places in Florida where you can really expect to kill a few pintails anymore. Um, and the Atlantic Flyway, it's the same thing. They've just, uh, habitat degradation all the way down. So that now, you know, even Florida, which still has some good habitat, there just aren't the ducks there used to be. It all comes back to habitat. And, and we're all, you know, the the drier states are, are battling over water because everybody needs it and wants it. And, you know, it's, it's a tough discussion. But, uh, you know, ducks are waterfowl. That's kind of a key thing to to having ducks is water and having it in the right places at the right times. Um, you know, a lot of our habitat in Arkansas is degrading because of too much water. In our desire to have green timber duck hunting, we flooded green timber areas every year, forced water on them. And now we're seeing the trees die because of that. Um, and that's a big problem. So, you know, it, it's funny in our work, Aaron, we're always battling the things, the destruction man has wrought. And many times they weren't trying, they were trying to do good, you know, they wanted to do a good thing and it just had some really bad repercussions.
2: Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think the other thing that's always worth talking about is that, uh, you know with the water it's it's a lot more than just about ducks and you can almost say you know when ducks and waterfowl are doing well a lot of the other critters we like and love to pursue are are also doing decent right because it means water's probably been managed pretty well it means habitat's probably in decent shape and a lot of the other critters even you know terrestrial ones are are relying on you know good wetlands and and good riparian areas and so on so i think that's a it's a good
1: reason to get involved in waterfowl conservation Uh, Absolutely. I mean, a a few years ago, there was a report out about all these bird species that were in peril, yet waterfowl were doing great. And most of the marsh birds, you know, from songbirds to the various shorebirds and all, were also doing very well. And fortunately, that's, you know, between all the the conservation pushed by duck hunters and, and other you know, conservationists around the country and the duck stamp program and the refuges and all of this stuff together has at least kept us somewhat stable, um, for all these birds that depend on wetlands. Yeah. And we've got something called NACA. Folks aren't aware of the
2: North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which infuses a lot of funds into wetlands conservation and, and creation. The duck stamp is huge. Uh, lots of other ways that, uh, We've made funds available for for waterfowl conservation, and it's a cool model. There's some other other kind of conservation that's starting to look at that model and, and see if it could help those other areas beyond just wetlands. So those are those are
1: pretty tried and true, pretty special things we've done in our country. It, it is one of our success stories. Now, now if you can help me figure out how to get bob bobwhite quail back around here, <laughs> I'll be uh, I'll really be tickled. Well. Hopefully we can,
2: maybe we can, uh, work on some grasslands and some stuff like that with, uh, some of the other things we're working on and that'll, that'll happen one day. Let's hope that would be awesome. Let's do this before I let you go. Maybe you can tell me a a really good waterfowl story. One of your favorite ones. I'm putting you on the spot a little bit here because I didn't, you know, even mention this to you about something maybe we'd ask you about, but, uh, you know, everybody's got a good hunting story, a
1: good waterfowl story. What do you think? Wow, it that's a tough one. I I I've been so blessed, you know. To I've I've hunted with, you know, everything from you know uh, out of work carpenters to you know billionaires, and and I've enjoyed every dang one of them. Um, everywhere in the country I've I've hunted, you know, waterfowl hunting tends to make equals of all of us. And that's one of the special things about sharing a duck blind uh, with folks. You're just, all of a sudden, everyone's on the same Mm -hmm. level. uh, And and that's really cool. Um, And boy, you know, you're talking about hunts with my sons or with my dad. I I guess I would have to go back to uh, the first duck. And the reason it's kind of weird, I shot it in New Jersey even though I lived in Tennessee at the time. But I had gone up with my dad. Um, he was in wildlife art, and he always went to the duck stamp judging at the Department of the Interior. So I went up there with him, um, I, and I was just a kid. I think I was eight years old. Went up with him to that, and then we went up to Gene Hill's house in New Jersey, and he had a beautiful place out in the country, and we were going to go to this place uh, club that gene was a member of to hunt upland birds the next day and of course i couldn't sleep all night for that but at daylight the next morning i'm looking out the back window of my bedroom window and i could see pheasants run across his lawn and then i saw mallards start dropping into this creek and i was all i was nuts about ducks already i've been going since i was three years old with my dad so all these mallards are dropping in and that's all i talked about at breakfast and we finished breakfast and gene said well get your gun and it was anything but a classic duck hunt, but we walked out across his backyard and the creek had kind of a, you know, an undercut shelving bank. So the ducks didn't see us walk up. And in retrospect, it was just, you know, absolutely nothing to it at all. But for a little kid, these about 20 mallards got up and just grace of God, one fell when I shot. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. I'll <laughs> never forget that. Well, that's a good one.
2: Uh, Anything else you want to leave us with before we let you go, Bill?
1: Um, Just if you want to get into duck hunting, it's not as hard as you think when you start looking into it. Um, And I'm more than happy to talk to someone anytime. But conservation is the most important aspect of waterfowl hunting. It's the only reason we have waterfowl hunting today. Uh, So I really encourage folks while they're learning more about the sport to learn more about the heritage of conservation in the sport, and then think about ways they can be involved in uh, making it go forward. Yeah, probably as much as any
2: part of uh, hunting that we all do, boy, duck and and waterfowl and just wetlands conservation, those, those two things, the ability to still hunt waterfowl is really tied to sporting communities you know long history of getting engaged in that and taking care of these places and and building them out and and bolstering wetlands and riparian areas so i think that's a good way to leave it that's uh if you want to get involved in duck hunting get involved in you know wetlands and, and waterfowl
1: conservation as well absolutely absolutely everybody used to hate wetlands and and ducks ducks and duck hunting are the only reason we still have any i think well thanks bill uh I know you'll be out there. Maybe you can share some
2: stories with us later about uh, what what your season looked like and how some of this stuff came to fruition. Uh, and uh, appreciate you coming on. Enjoyed it, buddy. Thank you, sir. Take care. All right. We are NWF Outdoors.